On this very full episode of AvTalk, we recount our travels back from Stockholm, go through the vast amount of news that came out this week, including breaking news before we recorded, and John Pitts and Richard Whitwell from EJET join us in part one of a two-part interview to help us better understand how the aviation fueling system works around the world. Hello and welcome to episode 142 of AvTalk. I am Ian Pechnik here as always with... But no longer in person with Jason uh, Rabinowitz. It's I know. true. It was it's such a, a nice change of pace. This is going to sound, I don't even know if cliche is the right word, but parting was, it was just sorrow. It wasn't even sweet sorrow. Especially in the way it went down. Oh, yeah. But we both got home. It took a we'll, while. We'll get there. We we'll got get home. There. Let's, yeah, let's we'll, do we'll, our, our platitudes and greetings first. We'll get there. How how are you doing now, sir? I'm good. I have a drink in my hand. It's the end of the year, so there's not much going on at work, and I'm talking to you. Well, that's good. I also have a drink in my hand. It, it is sparkling water, sadly enough. But we can. Fix I that. am talking to you. Yeah. Well, we can fix it later. There there are kids that are still at school that need to be retrieved, and so I, I I shan't partake in that kind of drinking just yet. However, good sir, I am talking to you, and that does give me pleasure. We have a jam packed show this week. We tried to wind things down. We tried. Yeah, we last tried week to was say kind of a decoy, wasn't it? Yeah, yeah. We we tried to say, okay, the it's December, we're gonna slow things down. And then actually, no, what happened is right after we recorded, there was big news and big news and big news. And the big news hasn't really stopped since. So it's Wednesday, the 15th of December. And from last Wednesday, from after we recorded, we've got a bunch of stuff. So I feel like we should compress this and maybe do an episode, like a video episode or something like that, because I feel like this story benefits from visuals. But Jason, I will let you go first to tell your story, how you got home or almost didn't get home from Stockholm. (sighs) Okay. Let me crack my knuckles for this one. So yes, it was a very long day. I was booked home on not a nonstop from Stockholm to New York because the nonstop on SAS did not operate on that particular day. I was due to fly Stockholm to Copenhagen, Copenhagen connecting on SAS and A350 over to Newark. And it seemed like a, a normal day when I was at the, the lounge, which SAS graciously allows premium economy passengers into. I was there in Stockholm and I'm sitting, I'm waiting around and suddenly out of nowhere, without any warning, I get a notification from one of my flight tracking apps. Notice how I did not say the SAS app, but one of my (laughs) flight tracking apps gave me a push notification saying that my uh, originating flight from Stockholm to Copenhagen was canceled, which was a a great shock to me because boarding was only due in like uh, 45 minutes or something like that. I then pulled out the SAS app, which informed me that I was rebooked with a three-hour layover in Heathrow, which is not something I really wanted to do, but at least there was something booked. So I and several other passengers who were also informed or maybe saw it on the lounge flight information screens went up to the, as you would do in this situation, the check-in agents at the lounge because they typically have rebooking capabilities and they're your, your fast pass to a new way home for most airlines. But 
they basically said, go down to gate four or something like that. There is an earlier flight to Copenhagen that has been delayed that you can get onto. So, of course, we all did that. I waited online. And for whatever reason, the gate agent wasn't having any of that and said, go over to the service station, which was a couple gates down, where they'll handle you individually, one by one, rebooking people. And I saw that as a rather not great option because there were a lot of people and only two agents working that particular section. I mean, there were only three desks total, so at least they were running at two-thirds capacity. But I figured, oh, I'll go back to the lounge. I'll have them rebook me on that flight leaving, and it'll be fine. But a weird quirk with SAS, and I think we both learned this the hard way, is that their lounge agents don't actually have ticketing capabilities, which is very odd because that's usually one of the primary things I expect from a lounge is immediate assistance rebooking a flight when something goes wrong. And they were able to call down to the gate or they tried to call down to the gate to get me onto that flight, but nobody answered the phone there. So they said, go back to the service center. They'll figure something out for you. I pick a number like I would at the deli. I think it was like A28 or something like that. And they actually got to me rather quickly. And they said, oh, where where were you? I made an announcement that anyone that doesn't have checked baggage, come to me and I'll put you on the earlier flight. And I said, well, I wasn't in this exact spot right here. I went up to the lounge and they go, oh, well, let me call down to the gate again and see if they can get you on the flight. And sure enough, it was already closed. And that was the only other connecting flight to Copenhagen that day. So I would not be able to make the connecting flight to Newark. So at that point, my option was just kind of sit around and and wait for the SAS flight down to Heathrow with a three-hour connection to a United flight within the same terminal, which is, you know, I would take a couple hour delay, which is not the end of the world, but at least they immediately automatically rebooked me to something. So I waited and I waited and I waited and I think we got like a 30-minute delay at some point. So I got curious and I, I pulled up this app you've probably heard of, Flight Radar 24, and punched in the flight number for my flight. And then I tracked back to the inbound flight and saw that it was just nowhere to be found. It was coming in from Oslo or was supposed to come in from Oslo. And I think they were having snow that day. SAS's operation just kind of rippled out from there. It was just a mess for everyone. And my inbound flight, just it it was nowhere to be found. Eventually, more than two hours later, it finally turned on its transponder and went out to get de-iced and was inbound to Stockholm. But at that point, my three-hour connection was something like less than an hour, which SAS was adamant that I would be able to do, not a problem, because SAS and United are both in, I think, T2 at Heathrow. But I was very apprehensive to do that because... If I miss that connection, it's a whole thing now with COVID that I don't know what the entry rules are. I need to fill out a passenger locator thingy. I have to quarantine. At that point in time, I thought I'd have to get a new COVID test in order to fly back to the US. You, We later found out that that's, there's an exception and you'll get to that. Yeah. But I didn't want to deal with that. So I tried getting um, a BA flight, which SAS was actually going to let me do to get down to Heathrow, but it was too late. They can't book within an hour, which really cuts down your option. Then the same thing happened. I tried to get on an Iceland Air flight through Reykjavik to get to JFK, but again, it was just too close into booking. So my last option for the day 
ended up being, of all things, thin air, not even in the same alliance. They're one world while SAS is a Star Alliance. And unfortunately, again, they couldn't book me on the soonest available flight to Helsinki, but they could get me on the following flight, which gave me a 40-minute connection in Helsinki, which ordinarily, I guess, would be impossible. But Helsinki really touts its 35-minute minimum connection time. I know you and I both know they're very proud of their- Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. But 40 minutes is pushing it. I got lucky. I was able to get a middle seat in the first row of the Finnair flight over to Helsinki. And I thought, great, I'm going to be in the first row. I don't care. I'm in the middle. It's a 45-minute flight. I'll get off. I'll go right through customs or immigration and go right to the gate. So we take off. We're in the air. And the really nice people at Helsinki Airport on Twitter were informing me that here's the deal. Here's what you'll have to do. We're rooting for you. But also, you're at a bus gate which any traveler in a pinch knows bus gate is is always bad gate. But in this case, it was a little more than just a bus gate. It turns out that at Helsinki, they do random COVID screenings, which means that even though we were at a gate with a jet bridge that was connected to the aircraft, we had to deplane from the rear of the aircraft and get on a bus and go around the terminal somewhere else where they could simply ask all passengers, have you been to Africa in the last two weeks? To which my answer was, no, let me go now. I have a connection to make. But (laughs) really, really miscalculated being in the front of the aircraft where any normal person would want to be instead of the back of the aircraft. And it took a little while to make that. And all the time, all the while, I'm going through customs, looking at Finnair's really excellent app as opposed to SIS's really crappy app. And I see the status going from boarding to last call to in route. I'm done. I'm stuck here overnight. I'm going to have to get a new COVID test and figure out a hotel for the night. And I, I run across the terminal since now I'm at the opposite. And I get to the gate and I see the best sight I've ever seen. I've never been happier to see a long line of people waiting to board, even though the flight had already been posted as in route. And it turns out that Finnair makes passengers fill out an additional attestation form that I think we talked about last time above and beyond what the US requires. And that constantly delays the JFK flight by like sometimes 20 minutes, sometimes two hours. Thankfully, this time it was delayed just long enough for me to get there, fill out the paperwork, go through my additional security thing. And I was the last passenger to board the aircraft. And then the airplane froze. (laughs) <laughs> literally I'm I'm literally froze so I'm, I'm the last passenger on board I, I get on board I tell the flight attendants I'm the last passenger on board close the door behind me let's go and it's great let's go I went to my seat which was thankfully I was the only passenger in that entire row and because it's an A350 it has a couple external cameras one of them up in the tail one of them up I think in the the nose area the nose gear and I'm watching the pushback tug up by the nose where people were just kind of looking at it and not quite knowing what to do. And suddenly the tug just drives away. And maybe 20 minutes later, the captain gets on the PA and goes, well, I have some bad news. Something in the nose gear is frozen and they have to go get a heater to heat it. And that might take another 20 minutes. I'm like, wow, after all this, I get on the aircraft in Helsinki and the damn airplane is frozen and they're going to cancel. It all comes down to a guy with a hairdryer. And, exactly. and I just I just want to point out for those of you following along, I was also following along with Jason's 
travails and, and everything like this. We had talked throughout the day. We had messaged a, a whole bunch and, and you had actually called me at one point and, and sounded not great. Defeated. But then at some point on the ground in Helsinki, your phone stopped working. So we didn't hear from you. Oh yeah. I'm still, I'm still dealing with that. Yeah. I had no idea if you had made the flight or any of this until you landed back in New York like the next day. Yeah. Something happened on the flight between Stockholm and Helsinki. My phone freaked out and just wouldn't connect to any network. So I had sporadic Wi-Fi in Helsinki, like enough to update the app to see what the status was. But once I was actually on the aircraft, I had nothing. And that's really bad timing. And even when I got back to JFK, I I was considering taking Uber home and I couldn't even do that because I I didn't have any data. So that was an an additional layer of insult to injury I did not need. But at the end of the day, I made it home with a delay of what, like five or six hours because I had to go the wrong way to Helsinki. So it added a couple hours extra flying time. But I made it. And the moral of the story is these days flying is really complicated, really challenging. There are few rerouting options if you do have irregular operations presented to you. Stay on your toes. Check the data, make sure what the airline is telling you is actually true. Because if I had stayed on that Heathrow flight, which pushed back in Stockholm about two hours late, but didn't actually take off for 50 minutes after pushing back, I would have gotten stranded in Heathrow overnight, which would have just been not a nightmare, but really these days a pain because you just don't know the regulations. Would I be stuck in the terminal? Could I go to a hotel? So had I not checked the status of the inbound aircraft from Oslo, it would have been a much worse day. This is the thing that gets me is it's not only would you have been able to because of the regulations or anything like that, it's would you have gotten the agent who reads the regulations the same way that you do? We'll talk about that in a minute. So Jason gets home. You got home, what was that, Wednesday? Wednesday, right? Wednesday, yeah. Yeah, so Wednesday. And all the while on Wednesday, my original flight was on Friday. And I said, well, I'm going to go home a day early. We, I didn't have anything going on. And I was going to go home a day early, surprise the kids, and that would have been fun. Except, so I get on, I go to to change my my flight. And the first thing is, is that <laughs> SAS, the flight was empty. Both flights are empty. The flight I was on and the flight that I wanted to be on were both empty, relatively speaking. Either a very good or a very bad start. In all cabins. And so I'm thinking, okay, I'll, I'll change my flight. And so I called up SAS, which was really nice because the calling the local number, somebody just picks up the phone. Really? So you just call like 1-800-SAS-AIR and someone goes, hey, how can I Yeah, wow. it was great. You get the recording in Swedish and then it's, you know, press, I think five for English or whatever. So I pressed five and somebody picked up the phone. Like, you know how when you call in and you're expecting to wait, you're like doing other things, you're getting stuff together, you're checking your email, right? No, it's just hello. I was like, it was completely disorienting. So I said, okay, this is what I want to do. I, I, I'm booked on Friday through Copenhagen. I want to change to, to Thursday. And they said, okay, it'll be $2,800. No, I'm sorry, $2,900. Hey, have fun expensing that. Yeah, exactly. It's $2,900. And I said, what? Why? And they said, you're on a you know a saver fare. There, there are no saver fares available. I go, the plane is empty. And what was the response? Yeah, they didn't care. Of course, you know, you're talking to someone who has no power to to care even if they wanted to. And I was like, okay, fine, whatever. It's like online. It was over $1,000 cheaper to just buy a new ticket. <laughs> I love this industry. 
to just buy a new t- just buy the ticket the day before the flight. So is that what you actually did? I don't. Th- I don't yeah. think I knew this. So yeah. you just bought a. I just bought a, a brand new ticket the day before. I thought SAS had waived all of their change fees in light of the. the- there was no change fee. There was no change fee. The fare difference was twenty nine hundred dollars. But the new walk up fare was. But only- the new walk up fare was a thousand over a thousand dollars less. I don't even understand that. Nothing makes any sense. No, Nothing makes that any makes sense. makes no sense. <laughs> it makes zero sense. And so I buy the ticket, but I keep the old ticket knowing what has happened to you the day before. Wise decision. I've kept the old ticket with a plan to cancel it and seek a refund for whatever value remains on the ticket after I have used the, the Thursday ticket. So I get my COVID test in Stockholm. I've got my my health certificate that has that awesome stamp that says doctor approved doctor on it. Approved. It looks so, so serious. But it works. Like but it works. I'm ready. Thursday morning, I, I go to the airport. Everything looks good. Everything's on schedule. I actually take the, the Copenhagen flight that you were supposed to be on, the Stockholm Copenhagen uh, flight that you were supposed 19. to be on. Okay. So it wasn't the same one, but it was the, around the same time. So I was like, okay, everything's going to plan. I get into to Copenhagen. I'm sitting in the airport. And I need to buy a Lego set for, I've gotten presents for everybody except my oldest son. I need to go to the Lego store. And I had planned to do that just before I went to passport control and, and onto the gate. And so I leave where I was and I go walk, start walking towards the Lego store and I walk past the board and it says Chicago canceled. Oh, so again, no notification from SAS. I re- eventually received an email that the flight had been canceled. I didn't get anything. I received that email after I had already talked to everybody and things like that. So to knowing that Jason had this problem the previous day with SAS lounge folks and, and dealing with people at the gate and everything like that, and I wasn't through passport control yet, which I think really saved me because I feel like that just would have been an even bigger hassle to deal with. But I beeline to the service desk and there's one person in front of me. <laughs> And he's he's not yelling, but he's just expressing his disappointment to to the agent that he can't get through. The problem that I experience is that that Chicago, the Chicago flight out of Copenhagen is the last flight to the U.S. that SAS operates from Copenhagen, and on any given day, yeah, everything much else worse leaves. Before situation day. for you, since you're already in Copenhagen much later in the day, your options at that point are basically non-existent. Right. I took my lumps and said, "I'll I'll rebook." for the next day. And she goes, but you're already booked on that flight. <laughs> so you wanted to, to rebook your new booking to the original flight yeah. where you already had a booking. Prior to that, I had clicked cancel and requested the refund, assuming that now that I'm coming to the flight's going to go and, and then it gets canceled, of course. So I think that's what did it. Oh, I should mention that the flight was canceled because the toilets broke. That's a, a stinky situation. Either that or something like the water in the toilets was constantly running or they couldn't get it to run or, or something like that. But it was something- Too much water, not like, enough water, somewhere somewhere in there. We can't make it work. So they did that. She gives me you know, a hotel voucher. We'll see you tomorrow morning. And so, okay, everything, do go to the hotel. There's like, we have a buffet at dinner. And normally when hotels in Europe say buffet- Having experienced a a wide variety of delicious breakfast buffets in Europe, I'm like, oh, a buffet for dinner, that'll be really nice. 
quote unquote buffet was three hotel pans. One was sausage of indeterminate variety. One was a pasta of indeterminate variety. And then one was just a tray of indeterminate variety. So I was like, "Mm, thanks, but no thanks. And went and got myself some dinner, woke up the next morning, put the chicken cannon newsletter together. So if you're not getting our our weekly newsletter, you missed a a great story about chicken cannons last week. Even I opened it. So check that out. I know. So put that together, go to the airport, everything works. We get on the plane, we're we're off to Chicago, we land in Chicago, no problem. Great. I'm like, oh, great. I'm 24 hours late, but I'll get to see my kids. <sighs> and then what happened? I think for the third out of four times that I've landed in Chicago, the last four flights that I've come back to Chicago or landed in Chicago, three out of four of them have had a jet bridge issue. And long story short... We pull in to the gate area. The jet bridge isn't working. It's pouring rain, pouring rain, pouring rain. They're trying to fix it. They're standing around. They're looking. Tugs are going low. We could pull them in. We could not pull them in, whatever. We're figuring out we're 60, we're 60 feet from home. The toughest 60 feet in this business, I, I swear. Yeah, it's always it really that is. last 60 feet. The eventual plan is they're going to tug us to a new gate. Uh, and then we'll be able to get off the plane and and go. So, but that in the meantime, the aircraft has been blocking the ground access road where all of the cargo trucks and tugs and baggage tractors and, and fuel tankers, you. everything. Yeah, I mean, we've created this huge traffic jam. I even saw the cops give one of the truck drivers a ticket for trying to get out of it. It was <laughs> great, and not for him. But it was no, hilarious. Funny to enough, see. We, we also had yeah. to be towed into our gate at JFK due to construction on the ramp, but it was a, a finely orchestrated operation, unlike O'Hare, where it seemed like they have never actually had a functional jet bridge. No. So it, the whole thing was just it. So it added an extra hour on the ground. Everyone's, you know, people are missing their connections. And the guy that was in line in front of me the day before, he had been trying to get home, trying to get to Chicago so that he could go up to Wisconsin because his girlfriend was graduating. And he missed the graduation because it was on Friday. And then I just felt really bad for the guy because he, he probably missed his his connecting flight. I just feel really bad for him. That's so, the worst because there's nothing you can do in that situation. At least yeah. my situation, I was able to know that something bad was going to happen. I could be proactive and avoid the situation to the best of my ability, where in your case, the stupid Jeopardy is stuck and you're just stuck on the plane. Yeah, the toilets broke fault. and then the Jeopardy stuck. And I just, I just felt really bad for all the people. There were 42 people on the flight that had connecting flights that pretty much missed. There, there were a couple that took off sprinting and I, I really hope they made it. But if not, I hope they the people had a, a nice evening in Chicago and got on their way the next day. But we made it home. My son loved his Lego set. Everyone was happy when they woke up in the morning. So it all worked out. The moral of the story is, yeah, be on your toes, I guess. Yeah, definitely. But we made it home. We did. Be on your toes. Check the data, especially when flying an airline like SAS, where the the quality of the data coming to both you and the employees from the airlines, quite frankly, is garbage. It's worse than garbage because it was often wrong. Yeah, that was the – I think the worst part about it was having – no information. I will say that when we had the JetBridge thing, the, the captain just narrated the whole thing beautifully. He was very clipped in his updates, but but gave some gave some color commentary to the proceedings. That certainly, you know, just like the thirty seconds here and there throughout the hour, definitely made what could have been a mutinous situation much better. Well, same on my flight with Finnair, because I'm sure by the time 
I had gotten on the aircraft, there had been people sitting on that A350 already for probably upwards of almost two hours, I assume, yeah. since we were already quite late. Um, so just a little bit of information, almost jokingly saying, hey, we want to go soon, but the plane's frozen. So hang, hang tight. <laughs> Oh, man. What a week. But Yeah. And we haven't even gotten to the news. We're 26 minutes in. And oh, my We have goodness. a whole page of news. Okay. Here we go. You ready? Yes. So last week, for any newsletter readers, I'm plugging the newsletter a lot this week. But hey, go and read it because I think it's good. We talked about last week after we recorded and put this together, the S7 Airlines A321 incident in Magadan looked bad to start with. Yeah, speaking of frozen and, airplanes. Yeah. And then it the the more information that came out after the Russian authorities issued their preliminary report, holy wow, Batman. Instead of talking about some upset recovery and a very scary situation, we very, very close to talking about an A321 crash in Russia. What happened was the aircraft came in to Magadan and then sat for a couple hours. And then everybody gets on board, they de-ice it a little bit, and then they take off for Novosibirsk. But the report that comes out a couple days later, about a week later by the Russian safety authorities, the aircraft had only been partially de-iced. They only de-iced the wings and the the vertical uh, and horizontal stabilizer. They didn't de-ice the entire fuselage, even though there was a lot of snow on the aircraft. Yeah, that, that's not great. And I, I don't think we know at this point whether that was an airline decision or if the de-icing company just didn't do their job. But that's going to be a very important part of the investigation. Yeah, the Russian authorities have opened a criminal investigation into the crew to find out what they did or did not do as far as the de-icing systems and things like that are concerned. But that's ongoing. What we do know is that they didn't de-ice the fuselage, but they turned on the windscreen heat in the flight deck. Just like your car windshield defroster. Yeah, we'll keep with <laughs> we'll keep with that. What they did is they turned that on and that melted all of the snow and ice off the windshield and off the windscreen. And as that melted, it refroze along the fuselage. This freezing led to instrumentation issues because of the the ice buildup around the static pitot ports or pitot tube ports. That in turn led to the computers freaking out because they were getting three separate airspeed values. And so the, the computer said, I don't know what's going on. You fly the plane to the pilots. And because of that, it was not a, it was a, a roller normal coaster. flight. It was a roller coaster. Thankfully, in this case, when the computer freaked out and said, I'm not dealing with this, you deal with it, it handed it off to pilots that presumably were capable of handling the situation. I think there are definitely situations and alternate realities where the crew would not have been able to regain or, or maintain control of this aircraft, and it would be a very different conversation. Yeah, it was definitely within their ability to recover the aircraft because they, they did. They tried to return to, to Magadan. They were unable to do so. They eventually diverted to Irkutsk because it was warmer and the weather was better. They were able to land 
and everything went fine. But the first 25 minutes of flight were just a, a pure roller coaster. And we'll put a link in the show notes to the, to the data and a 3D view of what the, the initial part of the flight looks. But I mean, things like plus 15,000 feet vertical speed, minus 5,000 vertical speed, plus 5,000. I mean, it, it was not not a great thing. So the investigation is ongoing, but some absolutely not good things happened here. And, and very, very luckily, the aircraft was, the crew was able to recover from the upset and land land safely. Yeah, we're, yeah. we're following this one to, to get a little bit more information about why the aircraft was not fully de-iced. But that seems to be pointing in, in the direction of... Uh, yeah, and just to stress how dire the situation was and, and how the control was, was really lost. I don't have the numbers in front of me, but they rolled more than 90 degrees. They were inverted. 90, the Russian safety authorities released the readout from the flight data recorder. 91.1 degree roll angle, yeah, uh, uh, minus 91.1 roll degree pitch angles. The pitch angle height or the I think maximum pitch angle was 43.8. The, the minimum pitch angle was minus 23.9. Yeah. So this aircraft was all over and is going to be one hell of a case study for the feasibility of autonomous flight operations. Since in this case, the computer freaked out, didn't know what to do and handed off control to the pilots. What would it do if there was no pilots on board that aircraft? I wonder. The computer would have requested full de-icing. Oh, well, in that case, everything is fine. That's the answer I can give you right now. I don't have a an autonomous flight uh, answer for you, but maybe one day I will. Let's talk about the A350 freighter because Singapore Airlines is pretty excited about theirs. Yeah, I would be too. They're apparently going to be the first airline to take this new variant of the A350. Singapore today announced it will be taking seven of the aircraft, taking it first, the first airline to operate, which I don't know if that means it'll be the first to put it into operation or if it'll be the first passenger airline, but they say they will take it first in the fourth quarter of 2025 to replace its now elderly 747-400 freighters. And I thought it was interesting how this order came to be. Singapore is not doing so hot right now. It is not transporting many passengers because it doesn't have a domestic market and international flying, especially in Asia, is awful right now. But it took this opportunity to convert 15 A320neo and two A350-900 orders to seven A350 freighter orders. So now we know the conversion rate. Yeah, we have the conversion rate. So that that's interesting. 15 320 Neo plus two A350-900 equals seven A350 freighters. There you go. Now we know. Oh, I, I don't think there's any additional cash. I think this was just a straight up order conversion. So that's interesting. Yeah, it's good to know. I don't have any A350s or, or A320 Neos laying around to trade in for- Yeah, for I, I have no trade in value right now. When I do, I'm going to remember this. Let's stick with the A350 and talk about some more information that we got following our discussion two episodes ago. The issues affecting the the A350 and Qatar Airways has grounded A350s, but the Qatari regulator has in fact grounded them. In the meantime, Airbus is taking legal action because of what Qatar has said, I'll just read the, the top paragraph of the, the statement that Airbus released last week. 
and they say, quote, in the face of the ongoing mischaracterization of non-structural surface degradation on its fleet of A350 aircraft by one of its customers, it has become necessary for Airbus to seek an independent legal assessment as a way forward to resolve the dispute, which the two parties have been unable to settle during direct and open discussions. End quote. So basically what Airbus is saying is we have been yelling at Qatar Airways. Qatar Airways has been yelling at us and we haven't come to an agreement. They've said a whole bunch of stuff and we've hired lawyers. So, I mean, things went from very quickly from, we don't really know what the problem is. The problem's paint. It could be something. It might be, you know, Abu al-Bakar being persnickety as he is with interior finishes and stuff like that to, oh, look, there's a problem. It's affected multiple airlines. It seems to be a paint issue. It doesn't really seem like there's any underlying effects to Airbus is seeking independent legal assessments. Yeah, this one got hot real quick. And it's no doubt that this is spurred by the article that was published by was it Reuters. Reuters, thank you. Yeah. Definitely spurred by some sort of leaking from Qatar Airways. I would only be led to conclude. And finally, we have some real action going back and forth here. And, and another quote from Airbus as, while Airbus regrets the need to follow such a path, it has become necessary to defend its position and reputation. So this is, I guess they're basically saying, don't mischaracterize this. Don't tarnish our reputation because Akbar Al-Baker, the, the CEO of Qatar, has been quite outspoken that this is a much worse situation than anything Boeing is dealing with, which I think is a mischaracterization in itself. But it's going to be real interesting to see where this goes, especially since it's only affecting older A350s, probably like the one I just flew on, on thin air, actually. That was a five-year-old A350. And this has since been, the manufacturing process has since been changed, I believe. So this doesn't affect new deliveries. But this one went from seemingly months and months of nothing happening to just a, an exponential ramp up. Yeah, it was just really bizarre how this all came about. How it was all of a sudden there were grounded Qatar A350s, and now they're leasing Cathay Pacific triples or ex Cathay Pacific triple sevens. They've brought the A380 back. There's a oh war yeah, that of happened words. today, didn't it? Now there's a, yeah, now there's a war of lawyers. It's it's all very bizarre, and hopefully they get this out of their system and, and figure it all out. And Airbus, to its point, has said, look, we've offered a number of fixes for this, and we've offered to repaint these planes. And Qatar hasn't taken us up on it, or Qatar Airways hasn't taken us up on it. So who knows where this is going? Who I, I don't know what nine-dimensional chess is being played here. It just seems so very silly if it is, in fact, just the paint, or if there's truly a serious underlying issue here that Qatar feels the need to, to dig their heels in so, so deeply. I guess we should stick with legal problems? This one was unexpected, huh? Yes and no, which is really interesting. I talked about how I got a, a copy of uh, Peter Robeson's book, Flying Blind, about the, the 737 MAX. Having read, I, I think I'm three quarters of the way through the book now, having read that much of the book, I'm like, no, this makes perfect sense. Reading the book. So let's back up and talk about what happened this week. Mark Forkner, the, the former Boeing pilot who was central to the discussion about the development of 737 MAX in congressional testimony because of text messages and messages that came out that he had sent came to the fore. He was charged by the Department of Justice 
And at the time, Jason and I had mentioned it seems like you know going after this one guy, it doesn't make sense. And as it turns out, someone at the FAA agrees with us. Yeah, if we did actually say that, I don't recall it, but I know I was thinking it. If we did say that, look at us, predict the future. It's basically saying Forkner is the fall guy. He has some blame attributed to him, but he is not the person that created MCAS. He's not the person that enhanced MCAS's authority to do what it did in the end. Yes, he made some rather terrible judgment calls on his internal communications and made the decision to leave MCAS out of um, pilot briefings or, or pilot training materials. But he is not the person that really should be taking the, the brunt of the fall for this. And, and of all places, the FAA has come out and, and said, yeah, uh, Fortner is, is basically taking the, the brunt of the blame for this and it's not right. But I don't think they really said who they should be going after, which in my opinion is the entire Boeing board of directors. That's where reading Robeson's book right now, there's a long list of people who had their hand in what led to what happened. I think using Forkner is convenient. He he is a fall guy. It's the path of least resistance because it's, they have yeah. the awful communications that prove that he had ill intent. This was an easy legal thing. This isn't necessarily justice. It's not it's not a moral victory or anything like that. It's we can prove charges and therefore we will. That being said, I think there are if not legal ramifications to go around there should be more people held accountable than there have been thus far. I'll leave it at that. Yeah. So let's completely switch gears and talk in just a moment with John Pitts and Richard Whitwell from EJET. They are the two gentlemen who know, I don't want to say everything because I'm sure there's something they don't know, but 99.9% of everything there is to know about jet fuel. And we're going to have a two-part conversation with them. We're going to have the first part this week so we can get up to speed so that we can bring them back next week through the magic of editing and have part two of our conversation where we talk about what happens to the industry moving forward as far as sustainable aviation fuel is concerned. So let's take a real quick break and we'll come back and chat with John Richard and learn all that we need to know about how fuel goes from uh, the refinery to the aircraft and, and get up to speed on that. So stay with us. We'll be right back. Welcome back, everyone. As promised multiple times in, in previous episodes, we, we've finally made it work thanks to some miracles of scheduling. We have John Pitts and Richard Whitwell here. John is the managing director of EJET. Richard is the business analyst, which doesn't fully capture what they do, so I will let them get into that. But gentlemen, thank you so much for joining us to talk about all things fuel. I'm extremely excited to finally have you both on the show. Well, great to be here. Thank you, Ian. Thanks for joining, guys. So I guess, first of all, you're, you're fuel experts, but what does EJET do overall? Give our, our listeners a, kind of an idea of, of what you folks do. Sure. We are aviation fuel specialist consultants, Ian. We are involved in many of the aspects of jet fuel, apart from actually selling the fuel itself which is where fortunes are made or lost. We're involved with the infrastructure that handles jet fuel, typically at the airport 
Although sometimes we are involved further upstream from the airport at supply terminals or marine import facilities, places like that. But we split our services into three main areas. One is design and engineering of fuel farms and pipeline systems to handle large quantities of jet fuel at airports and get that fuel to the aircraft. The, the second strand is the commercial network that surrounds fuel and how it's stored and handled at the airport, the agreements, the liability and indemnification structures that support the stakeholders. And within that, one of our special areas is open access fuel supply, where we assist stakeholders to improve the competitive landscape at an airport so that as many fuel suppliers as wish to be present on the airport selling fuel to airlines can do so. Restrictions are removed. And the third strand is operations in terms of compliance, auditing and inspection and operational advice given to parties involved in physically handling fuel at airports. So you are involved pretty much in, in all aspects other than actually supplying the fuel itself. You, that, you seem to be involved in everything. And that's why we wanted to talk to you because we've talked about, Jason and I have talked about the kind of the future of the industry in general in this podcast. And one of the big things has always been sustainable aviation fuel, especially over the past year. We heard so much about it at the Airbus Summit. Two episodes ago, we talked about it with the United CEO. And in between that, we've had various airlines and suppliers and air framers and, and manufacturers say that this is one of the things that that's part of the future. But we wanted to take a step back and talk about how does it work right now? How does fuel get from a refinery to the wing? How does your fuel go from we have we now have jet fuel to it is in the plane? What are the steps in between there? Okay. First of all, I think it's important to realize and appreciate that fuel, the cost of fuel is something like 30% of an airline's operating cost. So it's a very large element in what it costs to run an airline. And therefore, Airlines take a very great interest in fuel supply chains, the infrastructure that provides for those supply chains and how fuel gets into the wings of their aircraft as efficiently and as cost effectively as possible. It's also relevant that jet fuel is an almost perfect commodity. Whilst it's very tightly specified, and there are regional differences between the jet fuel that's available in the US, Russia, China, and pretty much the rest of the world. All those major jet fuel specifications are very, very similar to the extent that a typical commercial aircraft can and must be able to refuel at any airport around the world without making any changes itself or to its engines and must be able to unfailingly fly the sector it's due to fly without any fuel problems. So jet fuel, whether it's Jet A in the United States, Jet A1 in Europe, or those other regional specifications I mentioned for China and Russia, is a very similar product airport to airport. And it's 
very similar to what we here in the UK and elsewhere in the world would call heating oil or kerosene. It's a middle distillate. It's not as volatile as gasoline, and it's not as heavy as residual fuels that ships or, or, or other heavy users might use. It is kerosene, and in the UK, as an example, refineries manufacture something called dual-purpose kerosene. So depending on demand, depending on season, they will output this material that is can either be diverted to the heating oil stream or to the aviation fuel stream. Once it gets into the aviation fuel stream, everything changes and it becomes tightly, tightly specified, tightly controlled, and it does not move without a certificate supporting it so that it is always possible to see its provenance, its quality, what tests have been done on it at what times, and therefore the fuel should be traceable at all times back to its source. The reason for this is that if there were ever to be an aircraft incident or accident that was fuel related, it should be possible within reason to trace that fuel all the way back through the supply chain to where it's come from and what might have been done to it in the interests of enabling an investigation to take place. So with all that in mind, a typical aviation fuel, jet fuel supply chain will always involve a refinery at the starting point. That's where crude oil is manufactured into a number of different products and components that are processed and secondary processed and moved around sometimes between from refinery to refinery and blended and ultimately made into end user products, one of which is kerosene or, or jet fuel. Between the refinery and the airport, there may be several, even multiple different points at which the fuel is stored, it's moved, it's stored again, it's imported, it's exported, and it's moved around. And this is coming back to jet fuel being an almost perfect commodity. So it's very tradable very transportable. And I have heard anecdotal evidence that, for example, a ship was once loaded at a port in Europe, set off on its voyage, and was traded many times on the high seas between different owners. And it arrived at its destination and discharged. And where it was discharging was right back at where it had loaded in the same port into the same tank because <laughs> of its tradability. And fortunes are made and lost, as I said, on this. And that's fine because it makes the wheels of commerce move and it makes or enables aviation to, to keep flying and for airlines to get fuel at the most competitive price they can achieve. So between the refinery and the airport, there will normally be at least one intermediate storage terminal that is supplied by that refinery or several refineries, either by pipeline or ship or rail. And depending on the size of the final airport in question, that intermediate terminal may be delivering to several airports 
in a region, in a country, either by rail, by road truck, by pipeline, some in some cases by waterborne transport barges or ships. And it used to be the case that those supply chains were quite fixed and an airport would be very used to receiving fuel from a refinery and know and expect fuel of a very consistent set of quality parameters to be received every time it had a receipt. Now, because of the world we live in and the technology that we all have at our fingertips and on our desks, supply chains have become much more fragmented and it is in theory possible for an airport to receive fuel from a different place every time it receives and that fuel be to be handled by different participants in the supply chain, different shipping companies, different rail companies, pipelines, that's that sort of thing. But within reason, the fragmentation is constrained so that it's all done within reason. The fuel, once it gets to an airport, whether it's by truck, pipeline, rail, or in some cases, as I said, by waterborne transport, it is stored in a fuel farm in tanks at the airport which will be sized in line with the fuel demand at the airport. And what I mean by that is that there has to be some storage at the airport that gives the airport some resilience from supply chain interruptions. It's unlikely that fuel can, will be flowing into the airport 24 hours a day, seven days a week. If you imagine receipt by, by rail or by road, those supplies are in discrete chunks. So between receipt shipment, between receipt by rail, for example, the airport has to store fuel to survive until the next receipt, but receipt of a train. From the fuel farm at the airport, the fuel then gets to the wing of the aircraft by one of two main means. One is by a tank truck, which in the industry we know by several names. It might be a, a fueler, a refueler, or a bowser, depending on where in the world one is. And that vehicle transports fuel in a bulk tank on the truck and delivers it to aircraft. It's not the same as a road truck. It's much more sophisticated because it has uh, onboard pump and a set of hoses to deliver the fuel but also a meter to control and verify the volume of fuel that's gone onto the aircraft airlines order fuel by volume but it has a mass and that mass is important for the trim of the aircraft so the quantity of fuel that's gone onto an aircraft has to be known and not in excess of what was ordered Importantly, that vehicle also has quite sophisticated filtration on board because this is the last line of defense before the fuel goes into the, the wing of the aircraft. And the filtration, I would say that that filtration on board vehicles and also similar types of filtration back at the fuel farm and at those locations further upstream that filtration is where the aviation fuel industry probably spends more R&D dollars than anywhere else.
because the fuel has to be ultra clean in terms of solid contaminant and also free from water because water can present problems for aircraft at high altitude as a result of freezing and crystallization of ice crystals causing problems in aircraft fuel systems. So that's the, the refuel a vehicle. The second means of getting fuel onto an aircraft is what we call a hydrant system, which is a network of piping underneath the airport, which runs from the fuel farm to the apron areas where the aircraft park and at a civil airport, civilian airport, aircraft park at the terminal on parking spaces, always on the center line of the aircraft stand similar to how you park a car in a parking lot between white lines, aircraft park on a center line because the pilot's sitting in the center of the aircraft, not at the side. A hydrant system brings fuel to offtake points near to ground level, just slightly below ground, in a similar way that a, an urban fire water system delivers fuel to fire hydrants placed around a neighborhood. Fuel is delivered to the aircraft stands two offtake points via a crisscross nature of piping. And from there, small trucks known as hydrant services or hydrant dispensers take fuel under pressure because the fuel is pressurized from pumps back at the fuel farm, which could be several miles away or kilometers away. Those hydrant dispensers are simply conduits taking fuel from a, an offtake valve just below ground level. And the fuel flows through them through a filter as we discussed earlier, through a meter and through a hose system into the wing of the aircraft. So that's the concept of how aircraft are fueled and how a fuel supply chain works. It's important to say also that as well as fuel being filtered and other quality control checks and tests done at various stages in the supply chains, jet fuel or any aviation fuel does not move anywhere unless it's supported by some documentation specifically detailing the checks and tests that have come that have been carried out on the fuel the identity of the batch in question and the original refinery certificate of quality which specifies how that fuel meets the specification requirements what its density is for example what its flash point is what its freeze point is and the distillation characteristics of the fuel as well, and 20 or more other parameters that are, that are checked and tested at that stage. That was Managing Director John Pitts discussing how jet fuel gets from the refinery to the aircraft. And next week, we'll have part two of our conversation where we get into where the industry is heading in the next few decades and some of the huge challenges that will need to be overcome for the industry to meet its rather lofty goals or ambitious goals of sustainable aviation fuel. That's when the conversation gets... Stuff's complicated. Yeah. Yeah. We, we have to start doing math in part two. So I'm going to go get my calculator and we'll come back next week. In the meantime, we have- We're going to have to tear through the back half of this. Well, There's okay. A so the news this week. Yeah. I, I said at the beginning of the show that this was a long episode. And we have gotten some feedback that says, hey, you guys have gotten a little short. So we're making up for that in this episode. 
I will talk 20% slower. There you go. Stop it. Let's see. What do we got? EU summer slot waiver. Airlines say yay. 64% of the slot allocation needs to be used in Europe. That's fine. Air Berlin had half a new livery when it went bankrupt. They had half a plane painted. No word on which half was painted. (laughs) Now we get... Thanks. Now we get into the meat of the breaking news. Now... Uh, Yeah, breaking news. We'll call it breaking news. Qantas has selected Airbus family aircraft to replace its domestic narrow-body fleet. Whoa, that's a big defection from a very loyal Boeing customer. Indeed. Indeed Indeed it it is. is. So, so far we have information to say that this, this came out shockingly just before we started recording and not immediately after, but 40 aircraft firm commitment, 20 A321XLR, which I think is interesting. It's not just the 321neo, not the 321neo LR, but it's 321neo XLR and A220-300 aircraft. And these will replace respectively the 737-800 and 717 operating for Qantas Link. Additionally, Qantas will have a further 94 purchase right options over a 10-year purchase window to replace the rest of its 738 and 717 fleet. And this is in addition to Jetstar's existing agreement with Airbus for, in quotes, over 100 aircraft in the A320neo family. This is a Big, big deal for anyone paying attention to um, Airbus versus Boeing and just a massive defection. Yeah. It's not a huge order uh, in, terms of, uh, in terms of absolute numbers, but it's a huge signal as far as orders go. Yeah. Well, keep in mind that, yes, the, the 321neo XLR won out over the 737 MAX, but also to replace those 717s, Boeing really doesn't have a competing aircraft for the A220. You can argue that the 73 Max 7 is, is that, but that aircraft is exactly- Can you? You really can't. I mean, you can make <laughs> the argument, but it's not a legitimate argument. It was almost the default winner here. If you want an aircraft of that size, you end up with the A220. But that is not a shocker that Qantas went with Airbus because it, it seems like the most logical determination. But- it's a, a huge morale hit for Boeing that such a, a long-standing customer would, would defect to the dark side. To the dark side. Yeah. So breaking news there. We'll see what gets firmed up and, and what gets further announced in, in the coming weeks. But that's an, an, an interesting one and the way to go there. Let's talk about what's next. Oh, B, tell me more about BA and Gatwick. No, BA is going back to Gatwick, but maybe not quite how you remember it. So in the early days, BA very quickly ramped down and eliminated short-haul flying out of Gatwick, but they will resume flying out of Gatwick March 2022, so March of next year, ramping up to 35 destinations, three aircraft to start, up to 18 by the end of May. But officially, it will not be British Airways. It will be British Airways, I think, Euroflyer, very similar to the operation they have at London City Airport with City Flyer. So it's going to be British Airways and livery and visual identity and by booking it, but you will be on an airline that is technically not British Airways. Okay. Yeah, sure. Good to know. Sure. The final A380 test flight happened this week. 
and the MSN 272, the last A380 to be built and delivered new, flew in a giant heart pattern over and near Hamburg as part of the the final test flight. That is going to go home next week with Emirates, and then we are done. I'm with tearing A380 up a little bit. Deliveries. I'm actually sneezing, but I, I'm mute. But I'm, <laughs> I'm tearing up a little bit that it's going to be the last A380, and it That's tears it. me up that it's in the middle of stupid COVID version nine, and that they're not even doing an event. I know we were planning on hopefully going to that, but yet another thing that COVID has ruined. The last A380 will be maybe not quietly, but in a, a very diminished capacity, delivered to Emirates and. That's that. Yeah. So follow that next week, and and we'll we'll definitely flag that when it when it departs. Uh, in flight radar twenty four news to end the show, we've got some great stuff out this week. The latest update for the iOS app adds single flight playback map type support, which Thank is a fancy you. way. Of you can now view playback in whatever map you want, satellite, hybrid, or the terrain map. So you don't have, you're not locked into the satellite map alone on iOS anymore. So I'm super excited about this. Jason has been bothering me as long as we've had single flight playback in the iOS to get that fixed. So Jason, bother me about something else. And it is fixed. multi-flight selection in the iOS app. There you go. Working on that, but in the time for the time being, you can now, if you click on a multi-select link in the app, uh, you'll get to choose which flight you want to follow. Partial instead credit. of it just not working. So we're more gracefully handling it, but not handling the multi-flight in the app quite yet. And then bookmarks were released. Well, they were released today. We've got new bookmarks for aircraft by registration, flights by flight number, airports, or locations, which are are map locations, zoom, and where you want to be on the map. So you can bookmark stuff, whether it's a specific aircraft or, or flight number, and then see information about where and what that aircraft is doing, what and where that flight number is, or or the airports, and you get a bunch of information about the airport, including the current weather information at that airport, if you bookmark one of those. So go check that out. That is out today on the web only. And then in the new year, it will be available in a few months time in both of the apps and bookmarks will be respectful of whatever platform you're on. So, so everything will come with you. Uh, so you set a bookmark on, on web, it'll go to the apps and vice versa. So really excited about that. Go check it out and let us know if you have any feedback. You can either use the contact form or you can email us at the podcast, podcast at fr24.com. And we will, uh, we'll absolutely read that. If you have feedback about anything else, how long this episode was, or anything like that, please, by all means, email us at podcast at fr24.com. Or if you just want to talk about aviation, that sounds fun too. We will be back next week with part two of our conversation with John and Richard from EJET to talk about sustainable aviation fuel and the challenges ahead. And that will be our final new episode before the end of the year. The week after that, we'll have our yearly wrap-up of shows that we liked that we would want to listen to again, or in Jason's case, for the first time. And then we'll be back in the new year after that. So this has been a, a very thorough 
episode 142 of AvTalk. I am Ian Pechnik here as always with Jason Rubin. Thanks for listening. 